Well, good to see you all this morning. Uh, we were absent last week, as you probably know. Maybe you didn't even notice. I don't know. But it's good to be back. And uh, I was able to listen to the message online and really enjoyed hearing Michael wrap up the story of Stephen's martyrdom. But you guys know from our look at Stephen's life in that small little snippet there that it became a catalyst, if you will. It became a catalyst for a new season in the early church. The persecution is now ramped up, which we will see this morning. But God's going to use this increased persecution for his glory and he's going to begin to allow the gospel to go out to other regions as a result of Stephen's martyrdom. So, we are looking at chapter 8 this morning. So go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 8. So far, in Acts, we've seen some really tremendous growth, haven't we? We've seen several instances and references to you know, hundreds and sometimes thousands coming to Christ and one day as a result of the preaching and the teaching of the apostles and the work of the Holy Spirit convicting people's hearts and causing them to recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior. But we've also seen the persecution beginning to ramp up, as I mentioned. Um, it began with Peter and John being drugged and detained and arrested and then brought before the religious leaders. And they were given a slap on the wrist and a warning and said, don't keep on teaching in this name of Jesus and stop preaching this concept of resurrection, right? And they said, well, how can we stop? We can't stop speaking about Jesus. And so they continue on, and then the next time we see them detained and arrested, they're thrown into prison again, and the angel releases them and says, go back to the temple, go back to Solomon's colonnade, and keep preaching the message of life. And so they do, and then they go back before the religious leaders, and this time they say, stop teaching and preaching in this name, and they're going to beat them a little bit, don't they? And then we see them go after Stephen, and we see them stone him. It's really ramping up, isn't it? But we're going to see God use this increased persecution, and we're going to see how it works in concert with God's plan that he had promised to the disciples when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And so this morning, I don't always title messages, but I kind of titled this one, I said, I'm going to call it Rejection in One City Leads to Rejoicing in Another. Rejection in, rejection in one city leads to rejoicing in another. I actually thought about maybe calling it A Tale of Two Cities. But I thought, oh, I'll stay away from that. I'll just reference that, but I won't call it the message. So we're going to see Acts 8, 1 through 8. And our first section, and I'll give you the two uh, out, uh, section outlines here in a second. Our first section is going to be verses 1 through 3. And we're just going to see that as the rejection that occurs in Jerusalem. So verses 1 through 3 are going to be the rejection in Jerusalem. And then our second section is going to be verses 4 through 8. And that is going to be titled Rejoicing in Samaria. Verses 4 through 8 will be the section, second section, Rejoicing in Samaria. And what I th- hope we'll see this morning 
is this contrast. And I don't know that Luke necessarily set up his text this way for the express purpose of um, highlighting or illustrating a contrast, but I think we could see that. And hopefully when we walk through this text, we might see how that applies to our own lives too. And I know it's kind of cliche to say that when God closes one door, he opens another door. You guys hear that all the time. And oftentimes that's used to console somebody who may be mourning, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think in a way we see this happening here a little bit, but not for the purpose of consolation, but for the glory of God. And so we're going to kind of see how this transitions away from Jerusalem and begins to go to Samaria and these new regions. So we'll just read verses 1 through 8 first as a high level. And it says, And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul... He began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits... They were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was much rejoicing in that city. So we go back up to verse 1. It says that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. If you look up at verse 58, it says that they laid their robes aside at the feet of a young man named Saul. And some commentaries even suggest that maybe Saul was responsible for actually calling out the offenses of Stephen. Not that there were any, but calling out the charges. And Paul tells us later in Acts 22 that he was there standing in approval and guarding the cloaks of the stoners. He says in verse 10 of chapter 26 of Acts, I cast my vote against those who were being put to death. And he says later that he was given the authority to persecute Christians. This is Paul or Luke discussing or talking about Paul's text and quotes of himself with regards to this early persecution when he was still Saul. He was given authority to actually go after Christians because of what they were proclaiming. He says, I was in hearty agreement. I was there giving my own vote. I was protecting the cloaks. One commentary said that Paul would have had to have made an concerted effort or decision to depart from the ways of his teacher, Gamaliel. Remember what we learned about him? He was part of the Sanhedrin, and when the rest of them were thinking about really going after Christians, and specifically Peter and John, and really squashing them, he said, why don't we step back from this movement for just a minute? Why don't we let this do what it needs to do? Because if this is a fad, 
It'll die out like all the other ones have. But if this is actually a movement of God, you guys will find yourselves working against God himself. That was Gamaliel's advice to his contemporaries and his peers. Paul studied under him. So Saul, at some point, must have had to make a decision to say, I'm not going to follow the ways of my leader and his disposition and his sentiments. I am actively going to go after these Christians and persecute them. We see here it says he started going house to house. And so I think Luke is giving us this information partly to reveal that this new season in the church has come as a result of the specific zeal of Saul himself going after these Christians. And it says that a great persecution arose. Luke emphasizes that the persecution that the church is now experiencing is great. The word that he uses in Greek is megas or megas, which is where we get the term mega. An extreme, like a mega persecution is now taking place against these believers. And if you look at Acts 11, verse 19, we get a little glimpse of the regions that they went to. It says they went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, and to other speaking Jews because God had not officially made the gospel available to Gentiles yet. And it says that all were scattered except the apostles. Huh. You know, it's estimated... Michael and I were discussing this a little bit. We don't know for sure, but it's estimated that we're, there may have been upwards of eight to 10,000 believers in Jerusalem. Christian converts at this time. Maybe even more. Eight to 10,000 or more Christians. And Luke says that they were all scattered and all had to flee except the apostles. Think about what that movement must have looked like. Think about what the atmosphere in Jerusalem must have been like for these people to feel like they needed to scatter and be dispersed and get up and leave and have this mass exodus from the city. Think about that, what that would look like in Columbus today. If maybe 10% of the Columbus population was being persecuted, that people were going from house to house, yanking them out of our houses, throwing us in prison, so much that those of us who had not been caught yet had to flee... To Marysville. Some some Marysville. (laughs) This must have been a, a, a really impressive but also disturbing experience in sight. A disturbing event. And I think maybe, this is speculation on my part, I'll submit that, but there might be two reasons why the apostles remained. Okay? The first reason might simply be because the example that they had set when they were brought before the religious leaders and when they were challenged about preaching the name of Jesus, their testimony was irrefutable every time. It was undeniable. It could not be, it had no loose ends, no loopholes. It was watertight. The religious leaders knew they had nothing on the apostles' Because the Holy Spirit gave them the words to say and empowered them in their defense. We'd seen it over and over so far. Their testimony was undeniable. 
But I would suggest that maybe some of the new believers, some of the new converts, not the apostles, may have been easier targets for the religious leaders. We might call that the the low-hanging fruit, if you will. You know, that if you're Saul, and you're given authority to go after these people of the way, and your intent is to squash this movement... You're going to go after the ones that are readily accessible, that are easy, that might have more timid spirits, and whom you know can't give as great a defense or an argument that you've already seen be irrefutable in your own courts. And so we might say that maybe the reason the apostles were able to stay is because the religious leaders were going after the low-hanging fruit and the new converts and new believers, maybe. Another reason that the apostles may not have scattered themselves is because maybe they weren't called yet to leave Jerusalem. Maybe they were standing strong because they knew that God had first called them to to Jerusalem and they had not received a new directive or assignment from the Lord himself yet to go out. And I might share that in the next chapter, later on in chapter 8, we see that Peter and John do get a calling to go down and investigate and pray for some of the new believers. So we do see an example of them leaving Jerusalem for a moment with an expressed assignment that they have obviously been called to. And if you remember back in chapter 4 of Acts, no, chapter 6, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 6, when they decided we cannot leave the duty of preaching the word to do this ministry over here, they understood what God had called them to. And it was this ministry over here, not this ministry over here. And so we might say that maybe, maybe another reason why they didn't flee was because they understood their ministry was in Jerusalem still for this time. It kind of reminds me of... uh, this is a, an older generational reference here, so you kids, sorry. Anybody remember the movie Dances with Wolves? Jenny's raising her hand. That make you that movie make you cry? You're kind of looking like it did. Remember when Kevin Costner first gets this assignment, and his assignment is to go out to this western edge post. And when he gets there, there's no post. There is no sign of civilization. There's no real post to be at and to guard. And his escort says, well, let's just go back. And he goes, no, I'm staying. And he kind of says, what? He says, this is my post. This is what I've been assigned to. This is what I'm going to do for my country's national interests. I'm going to remain at this post. And that's how the movie begins. I think the apostles said, this is our post for right now until God communicates otherwise. Now look at what Luke does in this Saul sandwich. In between verses 1 and 3, he says that, And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. What's interesting about this to me is that the law prohibited the mourning of those who have been put to death by capital punishment. Because the assumption would have been that they had committed offense or sin and were worthy of death. But we know that in the case of Stephen, they were trumped up charges and he was guiltless, right? And so what we have here is we have some devout men that Luke tells us who went against the law and decided to mourn for Stephen and do the things which the law had otherwise prohibited. 
because they understood that the stoning of Stephen was an egregious act and it was not consistent with the character of God. And so Luke tells us right in the middle of this, this reference about Saul in verse 1 and in verse 3, there were devout men in Jerusalem who did the right thing. And I think it's interesting because we might even contrast this character and this activity with Saul himself. Shouldn't Saul have been a devout man? Shouldn't Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, who was steeped in the law, shouldn't he have recognized Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies? Shouldn't Saul be the one who's identified as a devout man of God? And yet, he's not. For a time, he is blinded by this message. But there were devout men who did the right thing. In verse 3 it says, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. So this is that whole new level of persecution. It's not only just directed at the apostles like it had traditionally been, it is now after every believer they can get their hands on. And it isn't when they're necessarily preaching in the temple or in the public spaces, it's when they're sitting at home having dinner. Saul and others are going into their houses, dragging them out and putting them in prison. This burner just got turned up quite a bit. And Luke identifies Saul, I believe, in this first section as a fundamental catalyst to the new season of the church. And he bookends what's happening in verses 1 and three about this man Saul. Paul refers to himself in Galatians as one who was a persecutor, one who was advancing in Judaism. He said, I was advancing faster, more aggressively, and and, and uh, more rapidly than my peers. I was so good at being a Pharisee. And he says, I was so good at stomping out Christians. And I was so good at persecuting and going after them. And he tells us in Galatians that one of the reasons he did this was because he was trying to preserve his Jewish faith. He was trying to preserve the traditions of Judaism. And he did not like that Christianity was a disruption. Do we see that today? I think we've seen that through the ages. Ever since the early church here, there are people who consider Jesus to be a real disruption to their lives. met with my former employee, Ethan, for lunch uh, on Friday, and we were sitting on the bench on the sidewalk downtown, and this couple 
came rolling and walking. There was a gentleman who was rolling in a wheelchair and a lady who was walking with him. And they walked up to us and rolled up to us and handed us tracks. And Ethan said, "Uh, no thanks, I'm okay. I said, I'd love to have one, thank you. And I said, I know Jesus. I said, he doesn't. And I'm still working on him. And I share that to say that Saul had a very, very hard heart. And Saul had peers who had very, very hard hearts. And in many respects, we'll say that the city of Jerusalem had begun to harden their hearts toward this message. Now we know that God is interested in the individual. And we know that some were still being saved. So to say that God was done with Jerusalem as an absolute statement is not consistent. right? That would be the same as us saying that um, a, a red state had nothing but red voters or a blue state had nothing but blue voters. No, we know that there are individuals who cast ballots differently. God still has a heart for Jerusalem, but in many respects, the door is beginning to close on Jerusalem so that it might be expanded to these other areas. And I, I bring up the event uh, on Friday as an example of somebody in my life who is still on the fence or has not accepted Jesus yet, but he's open to discussions. But there are some in my life who have already made a decision, who have hardened their hearts and have said, no, I am not interested whatsoever, I will never be interested, and it's impossible to talk to them. And all that does is become another roadblock between us. And so, for me personally, I have people in my life whom I let them be. I say their heart is hard right now, and I'm not going to continue to pursue them. Maybe God will continue to pursue them in other ways with other people. But right now, I'm not necessarily called to that person. But I am called to Ethan over here for right now. Because I can still have a dialogue with Ethan. And we can still talk constructively about faith. I can still share about Jesus with him. And I think we see, kind of at a macro level here, God doing something very, very similar. That in some respects, Jerusalem had become somewhat hardened. And this gospel is now expanding to these new regions. Look at verses 4 through 8. Verse 4 says, uh, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. <laughs> I, I mentioned to Michael when we were talking about this passage a little bit, it's kind of like a chicken or the egg situation. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Were they scattered because of their preaching? Or were they scattered first and decided to go preaching? You know what? I think both are probably true. I think there's a little bit of both. And Luke's point really here is that as they were being scattered and as they were going out to these other regions, as they were fleeing for their safety from Jerusalem, they went about preaching the gospel. And I love that a more literal translation here says that they were bringing good tidings of the word. You know, the gospel literally means good news, right? Remember in Acts chapter 5 when the angel opened the gates of the prison for Peter and John, the angel said, go back and preach the news about this life. Capital L. The gospel is life.
Paul said that it's, for those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But for those of us who believe, it's life. And Luke gives us some information about Philip and Samaria. Look at verses 5 and 6. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. Now, you guys probably know that this is not the apostle Philip, but this was Philip that we know from chapter 6, one of the seven who was chosen to help lead in the other ministries. And so we know about Philip. He had shown himself worthy of the task of dispensing food, but it also means that he was worthy in all areas. The instruction by the apostles to those who had come to them saying, we need a solution to our issue, was choose among you men who are worthy. Choose among you men of good reputation. Choose among you men who have shown themselves and proven themselves worthy. And so Philip was one of those. Stephen was one of those. Later on, we learn that Philip is referred to as Philip the Evangelist. And so what's beautiful about this here that Luke shares with us is that as Philip goes down to Samaria, he goes down preaching the word like the others, and he's not just singularly focused. He's not a one-trick pony that can just share food. This guy can preach. This guy is known later as an evangelist. How beautiful is that? The same should be true in our body of Christ today. That even though we have different giftings and maybe some more specific callings, we should all be ready to share the gospel. Maybe you don't have the gift of evangelism and and maybe you don't feel like you're great at it, but when God brings somebody to your front doorstep and says, I want to know about Jesus, you should be able to tell them about Jesus. You don't have to be at a pulpit to tell somebody about Jesus. And so if you're somebody with the gift of helps or healing or other kinds of things, you should still ultimately be somebody who can share the gospel. And so we see that in Philip. We saw that in Stephen. We should see it in your lives, our lives as well. And what I think is beautiful here Did you see what Philip was doing? It says that many were coming to Christ. Many were being healed. And they saw the signs and the wonders that were happening in Philip's hands. Isn't that what the apostles prayed for when Peter and John were released the first time? They went back after being told, don't preach in this name anymore. They go back, they all sing a psalm, and then pray for God to continue to give them boldness and confidence to share the word. And it says that, Lord, while you're doing signs and wonders through us, give us the confidence to speak boldly. They knew that God was continuing to use them and would continue to use them to do miraculous things, healings and everything else, as signs to demonstrate the validity of the gospel. And what their prayer was at that time was, give us the boldness to speak about it too. Give us the boldness to explain what's happening at our hands as you're working through us, Holy Spirit. And so we see the same thing happening here through Philip. 
He's doing signs and wonders and healings in his hands, but at the same time, people are hearing his message about Jesus. What a beautiful, beautiful event. Turn with me to John, if you would. Gospel of John, chapter 4. Keep your finger in Acts, obviously. John, chapter 4. Let's look at verse 28 for a moment. You guys know this story. This is Jesus having uh, the encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria. It says, So when the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men... Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Coming back to Jesus. And then jump down to verse 37. The disciples are asking Jesus some questions. And he says, For in this case the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not Labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now look at verse 39. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. Now, flip back to Acts. I want to just kind of reference that because... That reveals a seed that Jesus himself had planted in Samaria. And Jesus says, not specifically of that event, but a little bit of that event, that one may sow, one may water, and one may harvest. So Philip and others are scattered to this region of Samaria, to a town of Samaria, that Jesus has visited previously and planted a seed. And Philip, slash God, is capitalizing on this seed that has been planted. Isn't this an amazing contrast to what we saw happening in Jerusalem? There's persecution happening in Jerusalem, but here... There's growth, there's life, there's healing taking place. And God had directed these young believers and Philip to a place that he had already begun to prepare to receive the gospel. Do you know that's probably true in our lives as well? That at any given time, God has called us, not that we know the role that we're playing, but at any given time, God has called us to sometimes be a sower, to sometimes water, as Paul shares in Corinthians, and maybe sometimes to harvest. Now, ultimately, it's God doing it through us, but we don't always know. But we have to be available. We have to make ourselves available. We have to allow ourselves to be used by God because we don't know if we're a sower for a water, for a reaper, a harvester, and it doesn't matter because God gets the glory. And did you notice what it says in verse seven here? For in the ca- this case, in the case of many who had unclean spirits, there were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, 
And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city. Okay, so what we have here in Samaria is people being freed of the bondage that they were in. The gospel is freeing these people. But what did it say in verse 3? Saul was putting some men and women into prison. What an amazing contrast we have here. In Jerusalem, there's bondage taking place. And in Samaria, there's freedom taking place. There's healing. There, there's the lame are walking. And if we jump ahead to next week, we'll see later on in chapter 8 that these people were being saved as a result of Philip's preaching. There's bondage and persecution in Jerusalem. There's life, healing, and freedom in Samaria. And look at verse 8. And there was much rejoicing in that city. So we see that the great works that were happening at Philip's hands were a great thing. But just like Jesus' own ministry as he walked the earth, the miracles pointed to his divinity. What was happening at Philip's hands confirmed and validated the gospel message that he was preaching. And it results in life. So what do we do with it? Well, maybe three or four things here if I can share with you guys. Um, The first is that while the gospel was being persecuted and hated in Jerusalem, it was being proclaimed and embraced in Samaria. So, do we sometimes miss how God is using, to come back to that cliche, closed doors in our lives in exchange for new ones being opened up somewhere else? Remember what we said about how that might have felt in Jerusalem, what the environment and the atmosphere may have been like during this persecution? I'd submit that many people would have been extremely susceptible to depression and fear, anxiety. You know, today, we start looking inward and we start looking real selfishly and having pity parties for ourselves for much less than being yanked out of our homes and thrown in prison, right? We begin to have our own little pity parties for ourselves for way less And I would submit that there may be times where we actually miss what God wants to do with us over here because we're too busy wallowing in our circumstances over here. We get inwardly focused and we go, oh, woe is me. I can't believe that I stubbed my toe. Meanwhile, God is planning something over here for us And we'll miss it if we're not careful. Second thing I think is pretty neat from this passage. God was permitting them to see the fruit of their efforts. It says that multitudes with one accord were listening to Philip. They saw the signs he was performing. And later on I mentioned in verse 12, chapter 8, verse 12, we're going to see that all of that work that, that uh, Philip was doing resulted in salvation. People were being saved. 
when we are being obedient to the Lord, oftentimes He'll permit us with the privilege of seeing the fruits of our labor. Not every time. It's not an absolute guarantee. But when God has privileged you with seeing the fruit of your labor, it's a blessing. And it's a wonderful thing to to get a glimpse of that just a little bit on this side of heaven and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for using me and allowing me to be a part of what you're doing in this other person's life. Thank you for using me to be an instrument in something you're doing. Think about Philip. Thank you, Lord, for using my hands and feet to cast out demons, to heal people, and ultimately use me to save those whom you want to draw to you. A third thing, a seed, I just mentioned this, a seed had already been sown in Samaria for the gospel. Well, I kind of hinted to this already, but we don't know the role that God has designed for us from person to person or encounter to counter, encounter to counter. But we need to be obedient. We need to make ourselves available. We need to share because we might be the person that God uses to make that final connection that somebody says, yes, I want Jesus. I want Jesus as Lord and Savior because I realize that I am a sinner in need of a Messiah. I realize that I am spiritually bankrupt, utterly depraved, and the only way out is to accept He who paid for my sins. You might be the person that allows a non-believer to say, I want in. And then the last thing I'll just say, God uses everyone. This is very similar to the fabric of conclusions I've been drawing already, but God uses everyone. Now, we don't know Philip's exact background. Some speculate that he may have been one of those Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking. Maybe. Since the problem originated with a mistreatment or unfair treatment of Hellenistic widows, maybe they selected of the seven, but maybe not. There's no real evidence It's just speculation. But my point in that is, if he was a Greek-speaking Jew, culturally speaking, he's kind of far away from mainline Judaism. And yet, God is using this guy amazingly. God is using this guy miraculously. He had shown himself worthy and of good reputation. And that should be the same for us. We should show ourselves worthy of good reputation and willing and able to be used by God because he'll use anybody. And I'll just share a personal example. Uh, Some of you know that for a long time we had a homeless ministry downtown in our building and we had services for the, the men and women at Faith Mission next door. And that was truly an endeavor or something that God just kind of placed in our laps. We didn't seek it out. We didn't say, we want to have a particular ministry. We were placed there on that corner. They came to us and said, would you guys do a Bible study with us? And we said, okay. And it began to grow and it turned into services and so on and so forth. 
And we had partnered with a, a pastor for a, a little window of time, and then God had called that pastor to a new ministry out on the east side, which left a void. And so I said, well, um, we have a hole. I'll go ahead and fill it for a little while. I'll do messages on a regular basis on Sunday nights for the homeless. And that's only because I had spent some time, 10, 12 years, teaching kids at BSF. But I didn't really have preaching experience per se. I just taught lessons to youth. I said, I'll try. I'll do it. And then he catches wind. Michael catches wind that I'm doing something like this, that I'm operating in this capacity. He says, hey, do you want to get better? I'm... I'm <laughs> he, he, never, he, never, he never came and listened. He, ne- he never heard me or came and listened or anything. But... Right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think really he treated it as a challenge for himself. Like, can, can I do this? Can, can I move him from here to here? Uh, can I get him from backyard baseball to the Olympics? Um, I, I only share that to say um, that's an example in my own personal life where. I just said, okay, I'll be available and I'll do this regularly. And God moved in him to say, let's get together on a more regular basis if you're open to it and I'll show you how to work through the scriptures even better than you currently are. And my point is, I have no credentials, I have no letters after my name, and I have no real reason to be up here other than the fact that I just want to make myself available. And there are so many of you who are in a very similar situation who have said explicitly to us, I just want to be used by the Lord. And that is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so, not unlike Philip, we are all called to be evangelists at some level in our own lives. And we may be responsible through God in leading somebody to everlasting life. Amen.